We will continue in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you'd like to open your Bibles there, we'll be continuing to read. And we'll read the first 12 verses. We'll continue our message on verses 3 through 9 by looking at specifically this week 6 through 9 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Uh, Peter's concern for, for basically for holy living in an unholy, hostile world, in a hopeless world, is what comes to real focus this morning. Where do we get the strength to live a life for God? Where should we be looking? Where is that glorious life going to come from? And so think of that as we are reading the passage this morning. Let us begin. First Peter chapter 1, I'll read the first 12 verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage today, as we consider its meaning and its encouragement to us, and its message to us, we do ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts. Fill us, Lord, with faith and hope and confidence and a desire to know you better and to know your word better. And be, Lord, with the words of my mouth as I speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So he switches here from talking about the the great joy and glory of knowing Christ as Savior. And he says, so in those things you rejoice, now 
For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by many trials. If we think about that, you know, Peter is reminding us that this living faith he has told us about in the previous verses, a hope based on eternity, a hope based on the resurrection of Christ, that it is all paid for, that it is certain that there's nothing left for us to do, no work that we can stumble in or not complete, that he has done it all. You know, that is the motivation, the driving force here. We've just learned this. We have just been encouraged by it. We are rejoicing in it. But he gets to the point. But there are trials. We rejoice that our names are written in heaven, as Jesus says in Luke ten twenty. We rejoice for that certain fact that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. As it is written, and we read earlier, Romans 8, 36 through 39, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, and it is regarded as sheep for slaughter. You know, the persecution in the times of the New Testament was fierce. And he says, No, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor health, Height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know, we have a place with him because he chose to love us. He chose to protect us. He is the one keeping us, as we saw in verse four, verses 4 and 5. We have that hope, that confidence. But our faith is going to be tested. It's going to be tried through trials, many trials of various kinds. You know, I think it was the second message I preached in this church was James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it a joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. These trials that James and Peter are talking about are really a putting to proof. The Greek word there is putting something to proof by experimentation. It's used of a sea trial for a boat. Your new boat is finished. How's it going to hold up? When the wind hits, is it going to capsize? The waves hit? So they take it out on a maiden voyage to test it. And they try all of the different things and all of the features and all of the maneuvers to make sure it's going to be complete, safe. And once it's tested, then you have a vote that's usable. And that's the word used in this passage about the testing of our faith. It's also used of a baby bird flapping its wings. It's testing them, but it's also strengthening them. You know, preparing itself for flight. The word is used in the translation of the Old Testament into Greek to refer to Queen Sheba testing Solomon with many questions to see if he really was the wisest of men. And it's used here of testing of our faith. Not because God is ignorant and doesn't know whether we believe or not, but so that we might see our faith. And more importantly, so that we might see the genuineness of the faith. Right? It's one thing if you have a ship, oh, I've got this new boat. I'm good to go. I can, you know, make money, earn my living, sail the seas, 
If it's never been sailed before, you know, you make it out of the harbor and it capsizes or sinks. Right? It, by testing it, by being a tested one, by knowing that it's working and it's in good shape and everything functions right and it's safe, you know, that then you can sail the high seas. Well, for the Christian, you know, have you ever wondered, have you ever worried, am I saved? Does God love me? Is my sin proof that I have not been saved? You know, we have those concerns, those fears. And he's saying trials and tests come to us to test our faith and so that the tested genuineness of our faith can be seen. You know, these trials and temptations come for primarily for that reason. And they don't have to be grievous to us. Notice that he says, if necessary, you've been grieved by trials. Now we know the trials will come to everyone. Peter tells us this in the fourth chapter of this book. 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. Trials are normal in the Christian life. Don't be surprised. There's a purpose for it, an outcome for it. It's not a trial just to make us suffer. You know, God does not say, oh, I'm going to afflict one of my people. Let's pick this one and I'll make them suffer for a while. I'll give them an incurable disease. I'll cause them to have an accident. I'll end their job. God doesn't do that sort of thing because he's malicious and enjoys the entertainment factor of seeing us scurry like ants to fix our problems. You know, the, the, the purpose of our trials is really to test and improve our faith, to try it. And the, the difference between a genuine faith and a worthless faith is not always known to the person. You remember when Jesus gave the parable of the four soils? I want to return there for a minute and think about it. Here, the parable of the four soils. He's answering the explaining the parable to his disciples in Matthew 13, 18 through 23. It says, when someone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches what away what is sown in his heart. This is the seed that was sown along the path. You know, they, they, don't, they don't care, they hear, they just ignore and go on. As for what was sown on rocky places, this is the one who hears it and immediately receives it with joy. They hear the gospel, they embrace the gospel, they come to church, they get baptized, they take communion, they worship God. Their faith seems to be good, right? And yet what happens? He goes on to say, yet they have no root in themselves, they endure for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He thought he believed. But when the price comes, the persecutions, the tribulation, it's like, this isn't what I bought. This isn't what I was signing up for. And they leave. The faith was not a faith that was a true faith, a genuine faith. Because when the testing comes, the person rejects God, rejects the church, rejects the truth. It's a sad thing, a very sad thing. He goes on to say, the one who hears 
as the son among thorns. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it, and it proves unfruitful. Another person who is in the church, who is presuming professing faith, but they're not being fruitful because they weigh the things of God and the things of the flesh, and the things of God fall by the wayside. They pursue their own things, and they're not not fruitful. And Jesus says, by their fruits shall you know them. Any tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. If they're not fruitful, they're not producing good fruit, there's no hope. So again, their faith, once tested, we see it is not the saving faith. Now, when I was a young man, I was an atheist, as you've probably heard. And you know, I had no faith. And what he's looking for is a mature faith. Uh, before I go into that story, a faith that is held firm until the last day. And the reason for that is that that's a true faith. They persevere through all the trials of the world and then glory and honor comes to them. Remember the story of the parable of the talents? After a long time, the master returns. Matthew 25, I'll pick up at verse 19. The master of the servants returns and settles accounts with them. And the one who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, the one who has faith and their faith is maturing and their faith is growing and they're, or they're enduring the trials and the suffering and the hardships and the persecutions and they're continuing in their joy in the Lord and loving God. There will come a day when God is glorified because they've done it for him and they are given a share of the glory of God as a reward for their faithfulness. Now that true genuine faith that has been tested and known to be true in us is of great worth. And the old saying is, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You know, a faith that has been tested and shown is worth far, far more than a faith that has only been professed. And that's why the trials come, is what Peter's telling us. And these trials come to test our faith and to show what our faith is in. That our faith is not in ourself, it is not in the church, it is not in the world. It is in Christ, the true object of our faith. We see that in verse 8. Speaking of Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. Can you understand? We haven't seen him, but we love him. I remember as an atheist in college, somebody talking about Jesus, and I said, yeah, 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 I'll believe that. If he comes here, it stands in front of me. I'll believe him in him. I won't be happy about it, but I'll believe that he exists, that he's real. Uh, remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man wanted to send one of his brothers home in Luke 16, 27. He says, I beg you, Father, send, one to, send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come to this place also of torment. And Abraham says, 
They are Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. You know, it's not seeing. If Jesus appeared in front of me on that table, would I have become a Christian? Not really. I had no interest in the things of God. I, I hated the teachings of Christianity. I certainly wasn't interested in you know, giving myself to him. And you know, seeing is not enough. Jesus says in John 20, 26 through 80, right, he's risen from the dead and the disciples are inside. Thomas is there and the doors are locked because the church is being persecuted and they have to meet in secret. And Jesus appears to them. And he says, peace be with you. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here in my hands. Put your hand in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, this is the key point. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. The believing in the one we do not see is part of what faith is all about. You know, when God finally was working in my heart and I was going to churches, church after church after church, finally I hear the gospel. I'm reading the Bible. And when I, you know, the pastor had come by and he shared the Romans road with me. And explained it all. And I said, well, how do you believe in a God you can't see? Because that was where I was stuck. And one night that week, I was praying. I read my Bible. I had a King James Bible. I could read a page or two, and I didn't really understand it. (laughs) Because I I hadn't done Shakespeare in high school or college. And I prayed, you know, Lord, if you're out there, you're going to have to help me because I cannot believe on my own. When I got off my knees and climbed into bed, I believed that he had heard my prayer. And I was quite shocked. It's like, oh, I'd, I'd better write this down, how you know this, because everybody will want to know. <laughs> uh, but there was really, I just knew that God had heard and God had shown me. Uh, we're told in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, by grace are you saved through faith and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. God gave me the faith that I couldn't have. And that faith, he gives it to you. It's not of works so that we don't boast, but it's a gift of God that we might be able to believe in him, believe truly. The believer knows God, even though we haven't seen him. We know him. I remember the Pope recently was saying that it's very dangerous to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You shouldn't do that. But no, all the Christians have a personal relationship with Jesus. We know him. Even though we haven't seen him, we know him. He is real to us. Because he has appeared not physically on the table in front of us, but it has appeared in the changing of our heart of stone for our heart of flesh. It has appeared in putting the Holy Spirit in us and giving us this faith. 
know, we believe and we love. We love because we, he first loved us. And we have faith because he has given it to us. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We have not seen Jesus, and yet we have faith in him. Now, if you think about it, the Jews all saw Jesus. They saw his miracles, they knew what he had done, and they crucified him. You know, seeing is not believing. We say it is, right? Show me. I'll believe it when I see it. But they saw it and did not believe. Because this is a spiritual faith that we're talking about. A faith that is in things not seen. And that is what Hebrews tells us, that it is assurance of things not yet seen. We can face the trials that he's talking about here because we have Christ. Because we believe in him. In John 15, 18 through 20, if the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's all Jesus' fault that we're hated. We're no longer part of the world. Praise the Lord. Remember this word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. As we face these trials, we know that the trials have come upon us because of Christ, but because we know him, we can overcome these trials. We can persevere through them. He goes on to say, you believe him even though you do not now see him. And it's easy to lose sight of Christ when the world is turbulent, when we're in trouble, when we're in the hospital, when we're in the jobless line, when we're injured or, or sick or struggling. When the world around us is in chaos, we take our eyes off of Christ. Remember Peter did that? Peter saw Jesus walking on the water. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. This is Matthew 14, 28 through 30, if you're wondering. And he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took him, saying, O you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Well, why did he doubt? We all know we do the same thing. He saw all the turmoil and trouble around him, and he said, i got to deal with this. And he lost sight of Christ. He was trusting in Christ in the beginning, walking on water, something I certainly can't do. Well, unless I have, you know, those clear blocks hidden under the water and can walk across them like the magician. But... I'm not going to do that. He was walking on water because the miraculous power of God and because he had faith. But when he doubted, he sank. When we face all these trials, we're tempted to take our eyes off of God and look at what's happening. Instead, we need to remember our focus, our eyes on the prize, our eyes on the Lord. What keeps us going in this troublesome and cursed world? 
How can we face the trials of sickness? Be it the Q fever or cancer or Parkinson's or disasters like fires and tornadoes and hurricanes, poverty, adversity, and the loss of jobs and incomes. Here in 1 Peter, his focus is on what's happening immediately, the persecution, harassment, reproach, loss of your place in society, even arrest, imprisonment, and death. (coughs) You know, what keeps us going through all of these troubles? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 17, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make you wise unto salvation through Christ Jesus. Now it's interesting, the passage that says you will be persecuted is connected all the way down to verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. You know, we have not seen him. We do not now see him. He does not come to us and tell us this is the way you should go. But as we see... We have learned it. We have learned it from Scripture. Peter will come back to that idea later, so I won't touch on it too much now, but what keeps us going in this troublesome, cursed world? Well, the belief in the one we cannot see. The belief in Christ, who we don't see because we know him. How do we know him? We know him from Scripture. We know him from the work he has done in our heart and from the things he has revealed to us in the Word. But faith, not just in the one we do not see, faith in the promises made by the one we do not see. (coughs) Excuse me. Romans chapter 4 talks about Abraham, and in verse 20, talking about the promise of an heir to Abraham, it says, Now, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. My point being, Abraham did not see the air, but he believed God was able. God would keep his promise. And he had faith in the promises. And we also have so many great promises, and they're the things, as we talked about last time, that really help lift us up and give us the endurance to survive in this cursed world knowing that God will do what he has said, that he is able. And because we have that kind of faith, we can enjoy one of the other fruits of that faith, that tested and genuine faith, and that is joy inexpressible, joy filled with the glory 
of God. We're not talking here just about joy in our salvation. Joy in our salvation is a great thing. We are no longer headed to an eternity of justice in hell. And it is an awesome thing not to face that consequence. But it's more than that. It's not just the joy of spending eternity with Jesus in bliss. It's more than that. And we know Revelation 21 through 5 Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more, nor shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You know, we know we have that eternity of bliss with God where there's no, no more sorrow, no more sickness, nothing to make us stumble, nothing to make us want to sin. We will have that great glory, but that's not the end of it. This is the joy of knowing the one who willingly suffered and died for us. That's what he's talking about here. We can have that faith because we know the one who died for our sins. We have that joy inexpressible in knowing him, the Lord. He is the object of our faith. John Calvin says, Those who are not elevated by this joy above the heavens, so that being content with Christ alone, they despise the world. In vain do those people boast that they have faith. Right? If we are not looking at God and saying, is not God in the value of him and the love he has shown us and the promises he's made to us so much infinitely more worthwhile than all the things of this world, that the world matters not. In heaven is my focus, my thought. If that's not true then you must really wonder, do you know him the way Peter is telling us we should? I hope that we all do. But without this faith, we would never obtain the outcome of our faith. And that is the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Now, from man's side, the object of faith is what? To be justified by our sins, to have peace with God, to receive the adoption of sons, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and ultimately that eternal blessedness in Christ. And we receive these things, and by receiving it, he wants, by using those words, he wants us to understand that there is no doubt. You know, God is keeping all of this for us, and it is certain for us, and therefore we need not waver. We need not say, oh, this is, you know, this is getting too much for me and I think my old life was better than the Christian life and maybe I should turn back. Right? We do not want to do that. We do not need to do that. Because he is guaranteed we will make it. And he is guaranteed in his promises that the reward is greater than all that we lose here, than all that we suffer in this life. We will absolutely receive the outcome of our faith. Now, 
The outcome of our faith is not, as I've said, an awesome life in the here and now. Now, When I first became a Christian, people were telling me, oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That was the gospel they were sharing to everybody. Well, first of all, God doesn't love everybody. And second of all, he doesn't promise us beds of roses in this life. Health, wealth, and prosperity are not the promises of God for life on earth. As we read earlier, if you want to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, the promise of God is persecution, troubles, trials, testing of our faith, as Peter puts it here. Uh, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 17-20 says that you know, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. We talked about this last week. He was raised because all of our sins were paid for and there was no more punishment due, and therefore he was released from, from death. Uh, for us, the payment is never enough. For Christ, because his soul is of infinite worth, his death had infinite value. It can pay an infinite debt that we owe. So that's why he's saying, if your, your faith is futile, you're, not in, you're, you're still in your sins if you had not been raised. And he goes on, if those, and those who had fallen who have fallen asleep in Christ, then have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. It is not become a Christian because life is better than not Christian. Paul says, no, if this life is all we care about, if this life is all we have, we are to be pitied above all men. Because we will suffer more as a Christian than as a non-Christian. And we will deny ourselves the pleasures of the flesh that they enjoy. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, Peter told us back in verse 6 that we rejoice now for a little while. If necessary, we've been grieved by various trials. You know, the outcome of our faith is worth more than all these trials and difficulties and troubles. And he's reminding us where we should be directing our thoughts, our hopes, our meditations. And that is on eternity and our salvation. Because that has the greatest meaning. The final product of our faith is the saving of our souls, of the deliverance from hell and being brought to heaven. And so he says that the salvation of our souls is really the result of or the outcome of our faith. Again, this is not about a perfect, comfortable life here. The sickness, the trials, the poverty, the adversity, the persecution. These are the things we know we have. And our salvation, though, we need to remember what this is. You know, we are saved from what? From eternal rest and death? From obliteration? That's what many teach today. But no, we are saved from the pains of hell for all eternity. You know, when we think about where does our strength come from to endure the trial we're going under, the temptation we have, the suffering, the affliction we get, where does it come from? Oh, I'm, I'm not going to have to sleep forever in death. No. Right? What hope is that? I'm not going to spend eternity tormented in hell. 
And therefore, this minor problem, these brief and momentary struggles, are really not important. I can endure them. I can live through them. Yes, they hurt. Yes, I weep. Yes, I suffer. But I have Christ, the object of my faith. And I have the eternal salvation of my soul, the outcome of my faith. And that is what Peter is driving at in this passage, that this world is hard. This world is terrible because of sin. But we have eternity with Christ. And therefore we can endure. And this is part of what that inexpressible joy comes from. We've been saved by God. We have been spared our just deserts. We have been given a place with him, the adoption of sons. We will be perfect in holiness. He will bring out new treasures from his storehouse every day throughout all eternity. We will see and enjoy and renew things. I remember when I first became a Christian, reading the book of Revelation. Every day the people just bowed down and worshipped God. And I thought, ah, if I have to do that for a million years, isn't that going to get a little boring? <laughs> but I didn't know him very well at the time. I was a new believer. You know, his mercies are new each day. Think of his infinite greatness. Day by day by day, new things are coming forward, new joys, new understandings. And we will rejoice. When I first became a Christian, and you know, I'm reading the Bible through a couple of times, or many times in a row, each time I learned new things and I got more excited and more devoted and more understanding. Well, we will have an eternity of that. And so that is where that inexpressible joy he talks about is going to come from, from Christ, from knowing him, from knowing him more and more truly. And that is a great joy. Now, we should remember, though, that this isn't something that is simple and easy to understand. And it is something that people teach all different kinds of strange ideas about. Now Jude says, Beloved, I was eager to write you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. You know, this understanding is something we need to contend for every day. Uh, the temptation in our own heart to turn away from it. The, the people whispering in our ears and giving us books. And they're all talking against it if they don't agree with Scripture. And so once for all delivered unto the saints in the Scriptures, the truths that tell us the things that we can rejoice in, the things that we can know, the things that will give us this inexpressible joy. And having a sure, confident, tested, genuine faith the faith in God's love for us, the joy that that gives to us, the strength that that imparts to us to face all of the trials of this life, be it sickness or poverty or persecution or death. We can face them all because we are confident in his promises. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, we see him not, but we know him. We believe in him. We trust in him. We hope in him. And that gives us the joy to overcome all of the trials of this life. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for telling us these things in Scripture that we can find strength to endure the suffering, the trials, the troubles that come to us.
And we know, Lord, that everyone in this room faces various trials, some of them very serious, and yet we all come together in the joy of knowing your Son, the joy of knowing the love that you have shown to us in him, the joy of knowing that that will never be taken away, the joy of having that tested, genuine faith, And we pray, Lord, that that joy, that knowledge, that love would preserve us and protect us as you take care of us through our lives until the end, promising us an eternal reward. We ask, Lord, these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.